0: before you this night, and thank you for each one that is here, and Lord, we just ask that you would bless us from your word, encourage us, and give us strength to keep serving you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles if you would, and let's go to the book of Nahum. And um, I don't know, it sounds a little loud up here. Uh, if it doesn't sound loud out there, it'll get that way before long, probably. Uh, Nahum, the book of Nahum, that's one of those strange little books. And and Nahum starts out, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Now, you know, everybody likes to explain things that the Bible doesn't explain. And they have tried to figure out what an Elkoshite is. And I have news for you. Nobody knows. Uh, there is a city in Nazareth that has a very similar name um, in the area of Nazareth. And some people believe that that's where Nahum come from. Uh, it could be talking about his family, his um, family. All we know that is that Nahum was a prophet and the burden that Nahum talked about, gave in his prophecy was not his burden. Oftentimes the the prophets would say the burden of Joel, the burden, and those were uh, primarily sent with messages of woe to the people of Israel. Uh, Nahum was different he was sent with a message of woe to Nineveh and he said the burden of Nineveh because Nineveh was going to carry the brunt the the prophecies that were here and it's again Nahum's one of the shorter uh, of the prophecies and uh, three chapters. And uh, Nahum, I mean, Nineveh was destroyed in 612 B.C. If you remember, the first time Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem was about 606 B.C. And so somewhere before that destruction of Nineveh is more than likely the prophecy of of Nahum. And... uh, So, that's mostly what we know. And and as I was thinking, I said, why would a Jewish prophet be sent to Nineveh? Well, how many of you remember the first Jewish prophet sent to Nineveh? His name was Jonah. And he walked through the streets of Nineveh and prophesied, In forty days this city shall be overthrown. And how many remembered what happened? From the king to the donkeys were covered in sackcloth and and they did not feed the animals. They did not feed themselves. They fasted and they prayed to the God of Israel and he heard them. Most people believe Jonah's prophecy was about 100, 150 years before the destruction of Nineveh. That they literally had a revival and turned from their false gods to the God of Israel. Now that tells us something about God now, doesn't it? Now you have to remember, everything in the Bible, this is the burden of Nineveh through Nahum the prophet, but this Nahum's prophecy is really about God. Every book in the Bible, everything that's in your Bible... It has specific subjects that God addresses, but it's all about God. God is teaching us about himself. And as we look at the days of Nahum and what was going on, this possibly could have been during the imprisonment of Manasseh. Remember, Manasseh reigned uh, 55 years, I believe it was, or 52 years. And he was uh, imprisoned by the king of Assyria. And he prayed to God in the prison. And God heard and released him and sent him back to Jerusalem. And he was the only king that ever went into captivity and came back. That was Manasseh and so chances are maybe manasseh was in prison and heard the prophecies of nahum i mean this this was sent to nineveh there and the interesting thing about nahum's prophecy and uh, as you well know i make no uh, qua, uh, qua, uh, claims of being a hebrew scholar and a scholar in any uh, shape or form, but the, those that claim those titles rightfully and have them tell us that Nahum's prophecy is written like a psalm. It was actually an acrostic, uh, very similar to many of the psalms. Uh, psalm 119, of course, is the greatest of all of the acrostic psalms. And, and so Nahum's prophecy was written as uh, in the same. Um, Uh, category as a psalm. It was in three different sections which are very close to our chapter divisions here. And each one of them tells uh, another aspect or part of the destruction that would come to, um, uh, to the city of Nineveh. Now, we have a couple of questions here. And the... Nahum's prophecy was directed mainly toward a people that weren't Jewish. Uh, there is one reference, to, uh, a couple of references here to Judah, to his people. Uh, but God wanted somebody wanted his people to know that God, in his judgment of Israel, was not being negligent in his judgment of other people. The, the ideal here is, the thing that God shows us through the punishment of Nineveh, is that God's holiness, and God's concern for his holiness, is not limited to just his people, Israel. God's going to judge them, yes. But you know what? God's going to hold the world out there responsible for their deeds and their behaviors as well and all nations would know that there is a God in Israel that has a standard that has that will deal not only with his people see they lived in a time of many gods, and gods were quote-unquote regional. Do you remember the Philistines when they were attacking David the first time? They, they said, we fought him in the mountains and we lost. Now we'll fight him in the valleys and we'll win. Uh, they had all this idea. And what is going on here? And there was a lot more communication going on between nations and people than we often credit it. We think... We ourselves are the only people that have ever uh, uh, had communication with all the nations of the world. And, of course, we do that very quickly, more quickly than anyone has in history. We just pull out a cell phone and punch in a few buttons and you can talk to literally anybody in the known world if you're willing to pay the bill. Um, But there were communications going. Probably one of the most effective uh, systems of communication were the Mongol hordes that would relay messages thousands of miles in just uh, uh, a matter of of, uh, 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 a very short period of time, less than a month. They could have messages back and forth completely across their empire. It was an amazing thing. And so as these messengers and heralds would go back and forth, this message of Nahum went. And one thing I just want you to think about as we get into this message is Nahum lived in a day when there was not much hope. You know, there just wasn't much going on. Good in Nahum's day was there the northern tribes Israel? If he came from uh, the land of Galilee, his his people, his nation would have been destroyed somewhere around fifty to maybe even seventy-five years before Nahum's prophecy. It was gone. He he had no people. He would have been a refugee living in, in the land of Judah. Or, or an alien living in the land of Samaria with all of the false peoples that the king of Assyria had brought in to live there. there. There would not have been a great deal of good things. Except for one thing. God is still in charge. God is still the one that is making things happen. And God's judgment will come upon those that stand against God. And Assyria certainly had. And so we we look at Nahum's prophecy and we'll just dig in here. And we start here in verse 2 of chapter 1. God is jealous. And the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now, that is some beautiful poetic word pictures, is it not? How that God is the God of the storm and the whirlwind. And then it makes a statement, the clouds are the dust of his feet. And we're getting some weird clicking here. We may have to change the channel on this thing. But, you know, we we often say the Bible is not primarily a science textbook. But wherever the Bible speaks about scientific things, the Bible is always correct. Now, how many know what the ingredients of a cloud is? What makes a cloud? How about water vapor? Do we need water vapor for a cloud? Yeah. I I even heard a story of a church building that had one of those really tall peaked roofs. And the Moisture would evaporate and actually form little clouds in the ceiling of the church, and sometimes those clouds would uh, condense and rain inside the building. Uh, It was really a funny little story, and it was an old building. had the The inside was like almost ten stories tall, and it was. uh, But you have to have water vapor to have clouds. Who knows what the other ingredient of clouds are is. in the book of Nahum dust that is exactly correct without dust you have no clouds the water vapor has to form around something and it forms around minute particles of dust and so the Bible says something that is absolutely scientifically correct and we can learn from it But also, you get the picture. Now, I want you to take the picture. How many of you have seen big billowing clouds? I mean, that go just thousands of feet up into the sky. That's the dust of God's feet. Do you get the picture? clouds 10,000 feet high don't even make it past the first layer of the soles of God's shoes if we were to put that in modern day modern day speech the clouds are the dust of his feet and yet they are so big and they are so powerful have you ever wondered Uh, I've not done the math but Uh, Recently there in Oklahoma City, they had a cloud, a storm pass over the city that dumped six inches of rain in about, uh, what was that, less than ten hours, eight hours, and just literally flooded the whole city, Oklahoma City. Now, Oklahoma City is not a small area. Water weighs about nine pounds a gallon. Now stop and figure out how, just think a moment, don't go too far, or you'll get distracted and we won't get back, but think about how many pounds of water it would take to put six inches of water all over Oklahoma City area, and that's not the only place where it rained. So, um just want you to think about these things as it talks about the power of God. It says he rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and dryeth up all the rivers. Bashan, which was and Carmel, which were great pasture lands, languishes and the flower of Lebanon. The mountain, quake. At him, and the hills melt, the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire from the rocks, I'm sorry, like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them. That trust in Him. And here's another theme that we've seen all the way through the Minor Prophets. Uh, Brother Zach, let's just turn this thing off. ...people and keeping His people there. In verse uh, 8 and 9... He says, it ends there with affliction shall uh, shall not rise up the second time. God is saying, listen, I am not going to afflict, afflict you the second time. You know what the inference there is? Because you won't be there for the second time. When it comes through the first time, it's going to destroy everything. There is not going to be anything left. In fact, why don't you just skip to the... Uh, End of the book, the last verse. And it says, there is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute of thee shall clap the hands over thee. For upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually. Now, here's how many of you have ever heard that word brute used? We think of uh, brutal and uh, uh, brute strength. It's not really, uh, it's the same root, but it means a, a loud clamor, a loud noise, or the fame of a person. And so it says, everybody's going to hear the loud noise of the destruction of Assyria. And that is an English word, by the way. And uh, the, uh, there is not going to be any healing And it says that the other people of the world are going to clap their hands over thee. You know what? There was not a nation that in in that part of the world that the Assyrians had not exercised their violence, their tyranny, uh, their terror, uh, their destruction. And it says God is going to comfort all the nations of the earth in the destruction of Assyria. And so this was not again a happy prophecy. We we have the mention uh, of Judah here in uh, uh, verse fifteen it says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of them that of him that bringeth good tidings and publishing publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feast. Perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Now, here was the prophecy of Nahum. Here is what we would say again, that idea, the Lord knoweth them that trust in Him. He says, Judah, you're going to celebrate your feast. You're going to be able to worship God again. But there's not going to be a Nineveh. Where they're going to worship God again. Now, they had uh, several people down through history have tried to rebuild uh, Nineveh and raise it up to its glory again. The Uh, Hellenists or the the Greeks uh, tried to rebuild it there and and the Romans even gave it a shot but it wasn't too long after that that the city of Nineveh fell into disuse and and total abandonment and that's the way it is to this day. Uh, There is no one that lives there. It's basically an archaeological site is all that's left. Just like God said in the book of Nineveh, in Nahum, not Nineveh. And so we come to chapter 2, and it says, He that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power uh, mightily. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel, For the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. And so we look at this verse here and this is now moving to what is actually going to happen. Nineveh, they were cruel people. They would literally just slaughter every man, woman, and child. And Nahum's prophecy said, just like you've done to them, you're going to see it happen in your streets. Those that dash to pieces, they're not going to be. Do- it's not going to be you doing it in the land of Israel this time. It's not going to be you conquering uh, the cities of Tyre. It's not going to be you uh, fighting with the Egyptians. It's going to be other nations destroying you. And God reminds the Assyrians, listen. I've destroyed my people. There's nothing left in the land of Israel. The people were removed out of the land, the ten tribes. Uh, at this point, as if we understand the prophecy of Nahum correctly, and it says, I've judged my people for their sin, now I'm judging you for yours. And we uh, look here down to to verse... Uh, uh, we can just go through here. It says, The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. And the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. Uh, Look at verse 5. He shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. The gates of the river shall be open, and the palace shall be dissolved. And Huzeb shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maids shall lead her as with the voice of doves tabbering upon their breasts. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water. Yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. Nahum is almost taunting at this point. He's saying, listen, you prepare yourself. Get your best captains. Get the men of renown. Get everything prepared. You're going to fight the battle. You are going to be strong. All of your strength is going to be on display. And I'm going to turn it to nothing. And the uh, word Huzab there, as far as we can tell, uh, I mean, we know what it means. It, it's a Hebrew word. It means to make a stand, uh, to stand in defense. And uh, as Assyria has stood, as they have defended themselves and destroyed other people, so those that made the stand stand. We're going to be led away captive and, and destroyed. We come down here to chapter 3, and it says, Woe to the bloody city. It is full of lies and robbery. The, the prey departeth not. Um, anytime you see the word woe in your Bible, you better take notice. God does not use that word lightly. When he says woe, uh, he's not talking about slow down. That's W-O-A-H. He is talking about great grief and sorrow and suffering and destruction. And he has pronounced that against the city of Nineveh. And God kept his word. And here is one of the reasons why he, he pronounced such destruction is... They never stopped the oppression. Isn't it amazing how the oppressors, how those that have control, how those that uh, take advantage and destroy other people for their own good, they they hold on to that to the last. I mean, you can look at it all through history. Uh, If you want to study the American Civil War, study the attitude of many of those that had and held the power over other men and owned slaves, and read some. Of the, don't necessarily read everything. Jefferson Davis was, by the time he wrote his memoirs, was truly a deranged and mad, insane man. But they would not let go until their dead hands were pried off of the weapons of control and that's where the city of Nineveh is and God says listen you just keep it up I'm coming and you know I don't know about you but there's a little hope in that as we see our society as we see our world just downward spiral and those that take advantage of other people and and, and try to uh, destroy and oppress. And there's so many ways they do it. I mean, you'll hear our mayor talk about this thing called income equality. That ought to put fear in your heart. Uh, there is only one way you can have income equality, and that's take everything away from everybody. Then we'll all be equal. It's the only way you can do it. If you took all of the quote unquote rich people and took every penny of every asset, turned it into the cash, our government couldn't run for a month. It's got to have the the little guy. It's got to have our taxes and our income to do that kind of stuff. Listen, it, it's a scary world. But you need to know something. God's still in charge. And the oppressor is going to be oppressing until the day the judgment falls. How many times does that come up? Uh, they were marrying and giving marriage until the day the, uh, the flood came and took them away. They were dying and selling in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah until Lot left the cities under the direction of the angels and fire rained down upon them. God tells us when Jesus comes back, that it is going to be uh, like a twinkling of an eye, that there's going to be people buying and selling and giving in marriage. He says, will he find faith on the earth when he comes? Well, that's the challenge for you and I. To remember that God's going to take care of all these big and great things. He just wants you and I to be faithful. He wants you and I to just believe in Him. And we're going to see all of these things happen. And the the Bible tells us that there's going to be no no end to the dead in the city of Nineveh. That they were going to be tripping and stumbling over the dead. And and that's in verses 2 and 3. Verse 5 says, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. We come down here to verse 6. And I will cast abominable filth upon thee and make thee vile and will set thee as a gazing stock. And we come down here and it says that uh, verse 7. And it shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Whence shall I seek comforters for thee? It says that the end of Nineveh is going to be so horrible that nobody's even going to attend the quote unquote funeral. There's not going to be anybody standing around mourning for Nineveh. And just like there were no one standing around mourning for the end of Nazi Germany. Uh, It just wasn't there. God brought them down, and he brought them down wonderfully. And we come down here, uh, and these last verses, again, it says she's going to go into captivity, verse 10. It says, verse 12, all thy strongholds shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If they be shaken, they shall fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, thy people in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thy enemies and fire shall devour thy bars. He says, you get ready. But there is no healing. And there's going to be rejoicing. And yet with all of this, The people of Nineveh gave absolutely no heed to the prophet of God. And so we read Nahum. It is a sad and sordid tale. It is a tale of woe. It is a tale of God's judgment. And yet even in God's judgment we have these little bits. God is going to preserve his people. He is going to be Complete in his judgment. And God is going to take care of things. You know, we sometimes as Christians and, and especially as Americans, we we are taught and we try to uh, uh, make our government is, is our government. Uh, I saw a bumper sticker a while back that says, don't yell at me. I didn't vote for him. Uh, But the simple truth is we are all part of the American people. We we determine our own government. And we think we can fix things. We think we can fix everything. Well, I, I have found one thing to be true. If you can take it apart, you can usually put it back together again. Do you get where I'm going with that? I can take an engine apart. All you have to do is get out the proper tools and the wrenches and, and lifts and all of those things, and you can take any engine apart. But you can't take a nation apart. You can't take a society apart. You can't take a mindset apart. But you can make sure yours is in good repair. Does that make sense? You see, Nahum's time was a time of no hope. And there have been times when, when I just see what's going on in, in our Congress and in our Supreme Court. You just want to throw up your hands and say, what, what is the use? Well, let me tell you what the use is. God is still holy. God is still on His throne. God still protects those that trust in Him. And God's judgment is against all that do evil, even those that name His name. And what we need to do is just be faithful till Jesus comes. And all God's people say, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Nahum and his prophecy. Lord, we thank you that you are holy and you are in control and you are the one that works these things. And Lord, we're thankful that we, as your people, as your church, do not have to be trying to steer the ship of state. But Lord, help us to be faithful with the direction of our own lives and our own hearts, and that we would keep ourselves grounded in Your Word and in Your truth, even in these last and troublous days in which we live. Lord, let not one of us give up hope, because Your Word is always true. And Lord, let us be faithful till You come for us. In Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, we'll just keep our heads bowed, the piano play. If you need to just slip out.